Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm your host, Claire Navarro, and for this week's episode, the final of our spring season, we have the chance to hear from Timothy Moore, professor and chair of the Classics Department here at Washington University in St. Louis. Dr. Moore's work focuses in part on Greek and Roman theater, and today he'll bring to life what it was like to experience these plays in their original setting. He'll also provide some insight into the historical context of Greek tragedies and describe his own research into the music of Roman comedies. We'll even get to hear part of a melody from a Greek chorus, so stay tuned for that. To get started, Dr. Moore invites us to envision a theatrical experience very different than what you'd expect to encounter on your typical 21st century stage. When we think about Greek tragedy, the first thing we have to do is remove a lot of our own expectations for what a performance might have been like. Because first of all, we think of a theater as a kind of commercial assigned event. We go usually in the evening, we go inside to a theater, we've bought our ticket, we sit down, the lights go out on us, and then this stage with the proscenium arch in front of it comes up, and we pretend we're not there for the whole performance. Be much harder to do that watching a Greek tragedy, because I sit in a theater, the Theater of Dionysus probably sat about 17,000 people, in a big arch on first wooden and then later stone seats around a, an area called the orchestra. Orchestra comes from the Greek word orche that means dance, because it's where the chorus in these Greek tragedies would dance. So I would sit down there, and then the tragedy would begin, first of all, with actors. There were only three actors in Greek tragedy. Three actors would share all of the roles. And they would be accompanied by between 15 and 24 members of the chorus. The chorus was actually amateurs. While the actors were professional, the chorus was amateurs, usually young men, about 18 to 20, who as part of their civic training would take part in these choruses. The first, the actors would come on, and then from the sides of the orchestra, the chorus members would come on and they would sing and dance and then they remain there throughout the play so that the play is made up of alternations between scenes in which the actors, usually speaking, present the plot of the play and scenes in which these chorus members dance and sing, usually commenting on what's going on in the play. Everybody, chorus members and actors, wore masks. Everybody is male. All of the cast members, actors and chorus, would be male. Everybody wears very elaborate costumes. And because, or most probably did, and because of the orchestra, even if you're sitting in the front row, you're a good distance, perhaps 60 feet, from the actors who are on the back of that orchestra. Because of that, gestures must have been very, very big. And the visual was very important. And vocal performance was also very important. Many of these theaters had excellent acoustics. But even if they did, with all these people there in that large area, the actors had to sing and speak very, very effectively, as did the chorus members. So we're imagining being in the original audience of a Greek tragedy. But of course, if this were true, we'd also be experiencing the turbulent historical circumstances that were occurring as the plays were written. As Moore explains, these tragedies very often reflected the violent reality of Greek life during the period. Most Greek tragedies were written during one of the most horrendous periods of Athenian history, right in the middle of this golden age when so much excitement is happening. The Athenians got into a war with the other most powerful state of Greece at the time, which was called Sparta. That went on off and on for almost 30 years. And 
it was in the end disastrous for the Athenians. They thought that they being a sea power could basically turn Athens into an island and the Spartans, their land power would come every year and ravage the fields. The Athenians would all go into the city and they just waited out and they wait out the year and eventually the Spartans would get tired. What they didn't reckon on was first of all how their own allies would abandon them, the Athenians. Second, they would have a terrible plague which came and killed thousands of Athenians as they were caught inside these walls because the Spartans were outside. They didn't count on the fact that the Spartans would be so persevering and eventually didn't just go home at the end of every fighting season, but stayed there. So the Athenians were always locked in this city. And third, they didn't count on their own, the Greeks would call it hubris, thinking too much beyond their station. The Athenians thought, I could not just fight the Spartans, I can go off and conquer the island of Sicily. So they went off and tried to take over Sicily, lost an enormous fleet. And in the end, they ended up being uh, defeated by the Spartans, and the city was almost destroyed. Right in the middle of this, all these tragedies, many of these tragedies are happening. And there's no doubt that the tragedians, especially Euripides, responded to this very, very intensely. Right in the middle of all this, for example, Euripides wrote a play called The Trojan Women, which takes place in the days after the conquest of Troy. And we get to see the atrocities that happen as a result. The Trojan women are all sold into slavery. Polyxena, the daughter of the queen of Troy, is sacrificed for Achilles. Cassandra, the other daughter of the queen, is taken off insane to be a slave of Agamemnon. The young granddaughter of the queen, Hecuba, grandson, I'm sorry, is thrown off the walls of Troy because his father was the great leader of Troy. So we see just how horrible warfare like this can be. And there's no doubt that Euripides is thinking about the current warfare in which the Athenians had gotten quite outrageous. They had, for example, taken over a city called Milos, slaughtered all the men and boys, and taken all the women into slavery. That's the kind of atmosphere in which these plays are being performed. They speak timelessly, of course. We still see on the news every day the horrors of warfare. Euripides responding to his own warfare created this work in response to that. As Moore just mentioned, despite the differences between viewing a Greek tragedy in its original setting and today, certain aspects of the experience have remained intact. And for this reason, these plays have remained known and relevant for centuries. There's no doubt that part of what draws us to Greek tragedy is its pure fun. The superbness of the poetry, for example, the drama of the family situations and the kinds of changes of fortune people have. But there's no way these plays would have lasted and had the kind of influence if they didn't speak well beyond just the pure enjoyment of the theatrical experience. And the fact is that they address all sorts of questions that are just as important today as they were in the 5th century BCE and will always be just as important. Along with the beauty of the poetry and the continued relevance of the themes, in order for Greek tragedies to be remembered for thousands of years, actual physical records of the plays first had to have been preserved. So what remnants of Greek theater still remain? And how were these records passed down to both scholars and audiences? What we have is that we have these uh, 30-some tragedies that have survived from antiquity. They were copied primarily in the Byzantine world, and then eventually in the 15th century they could have turned into printed texts so that we have those plays. Those are our major source, the ones that, thank goodness, survived. In addition, we have a number of fragments of the 
Greek tragedies of Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, and also of a few other playwrights, little pieces that have survived, sometimes being quoted by other authors, often in papyri, which survived so well in the sands of Egypt. That gives us uh, glimpses into other tragedies so that we can fill out some more from the ones that we actually have. We also have people like Aristotle and others from antiquity talking about the tragedies. We have some archaeological evidence, which is very useful. We have lots of theaters, including the theater of Dionysus from Athens, and then theaters that the Greeks and later the Romans built all over the Mediterranean world. And we also have a great deal of artistic evidence of portrayals on Greek vases of some scenes from Greek tragedies. Also, reliefs and other paintings can sometimes tell us about the costuming and things of that nature. So far, we've been hearing about Greek tragedies. But Moore's own recent work focuses on something a bit more lighthearted, Roman comedies, specifically music within Roman comedies. My book was about music in Roman comedy, in which I was trying to reconstruct a lot of what was going on musically. The case of the Roman comedies, we don't have actual melodies surviving, but we can tell a lot about the rhythm from the meter, which tells which syllables are long and which are short. And I was basing my work on that, in addition to the fact that the meter tells us when music starts and stops, with the result that I could make some musical analyses of these plays of Roman comedy. My work has been mostly with Roman comedy, but all theater in the ancient world, virtually all theater, was musical theater. And that's very, very important to remember. These choruses were singing and dancing. In the case of Greek tragedy, again, almost all the melodies are lost, but we do have, again, in these papyri, which the dry sands of Egypt preserved, we have just a couple melodies that go back quite a long time. And we have one, in fact, that may have been written by Euripides. It's a chorus from a play of Euripides called the Orestes, in which Orestes has been acquitted in Athens, but the Furies are still hounding him, at least some of them. And he goes back to his home city of Argos, and there he's tried by a court in Argos who convict him, and they're about to execute him. He and his sister Electra and his friend Pylades just go berserk at that point. They try to capture Helen, and they're going to kill her, and everything just goes completely bizarre until a god comes down and says, okay, this is enough. Well, in the middle of that, the chorus sings about how sad they are about Orestes. And they sing a song that says, I mourn, I mourn, the blood of your mother is driving you crazy. And we actually have from Papyrus the notes of this melody. So it's one of the very few melodies from Greek tragedy, maybe by Euripides himself. Papyrus is from 200 BCE, and it might have preserved Euripides' melody. So if these notes possibly written by Euripides, were preserved, is it possible to recreate the melody to hear what that original Greek audience heard? The answer is yes. So I'll sing it now, and we can get a chance of what a Greek chorus might have sung. My Greek mythology class has also been singing this chorus. Katalophiromai, katalophiromai, Materos hai masas hosana They sing about how he's being driven crazy, and as they sing, you're being driven crazy, they raise the pitch. Luckily, certain melodies, like the one we just heard, have been preserved through time. However, even when records have been lost, there are other clues that help scholars like Moore study the music of ancient theater. 
along with Greeks who wrote about, and to some Romans as well who wrote about music, we can learn a lot about what the melodies might have been like from there. We can learn from the instruments. We have fragments of instruments and lots of artistic portrayals of these. From those, we can tell some things about the kinds of intervals they might have played and how they sounded. That helps us tell still more about the music. Many thanks to Timothy Moore for contributing to Hold That Thought. You can find a link to his faculty page at thought.artsci.wustl.edu. That's thought.artsci.wustl.edu. You'll also have the chance to hear Dr. Moore again within Retellings, Hold That Thought's creative writing series, which kicks off next week. Thanks for listening. 